Some that we'll be presenting this morning is beneath the this to you often, but it's amazing how when we get here to worship, um, I don't want you to think that there's no preparation that goes into what we do because there is. There's a lot, but it's always amazing how God prepares our hearts for what's to come. Um, and I feel like in this time leading up to here, uh, He has been doing that. He has been preparing us. Uh, for the reality of what is before us once again here in Colossians chapter 1 in verses 15 through 23. So I I invite you to turn there uh, once again. This is the verses that we read the last time that we were together. Uh, And as you turn there, I would just remind you that that in our first study of this passage, what we uh, set our minds on, what what we saw uh, was... Jesus exalted as the Lord of creation. Uh, He is the one who is, Paul confesses, the image of the invisible God. And you'll remember that we spent a lot of time there trying to wrestle with the various possibilities of what Paul had in mind. And all of them, to some degree or another, had truth to them. They, They were... Uh, we could use them in an accurate way. For instance, we said that one possibility was that Paul had in mind that Jesus, as the second Adam, uh, is the image of God in that he has restored that image that was lost in the fall, and now he, in his humanity, bears that image perfectly. It's restored in Christ. And that is a true statement. Jesus, in his incarnation, does bear the image of of God that, that was given to all of mankind, and he, and he bears it uh, unaffected by sin. So that's true. Another possibility is we thought about that word, the Greek word, akon, and it's a reminder that Jesus, uh, he reveals the Father to us. Uh, as in John 1 and in verse 18, we have seen his glory as of the Father, as from the Father, full of grace and truth, or Hebrews 1. Uh, in past times, God has spoken through the prophets through in various ways, but now he has spoken in his son, right? And so again, that, that is, both of these things are true. Uh, but given the, the obvious connection here to creation, uh, Jesus' role in creation, we said that it was probably best to interpret that, that saying, that the image of the invisible God, as pointing us to Christ pre-existence, that he is the, the pre-existent sort of archetype, that, that he literally is that image of God that was given to Adam. And so what Paul is, is drawing us closer to here is Christ's eternal nature, his divinity. He, he is before all things, he existed. And now we all, to some degree or another, bear his image. Secondly, along those same lines, we saw that Jesus, as Lord of creation, is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, you'll remember we said, given the the Old Testament examples that we looked at, that what Paul has in mind here is not a a physical generation. It's not a, a physical birth in his humanity but what he's speaking to, again, is his, his divinity, his place, his standing above all things as the one who has authority over all. He is the, the heir of God. He is the 
Lord, the heir of David, who reigns over all things. His, as we have already confessed this morning, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's at his name that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every voice confess that he is Lord. And so he was drawing us to that idea that Jesus is the preeminent King, And then finally, we saw that Jesus is the agent, the means, the goal, and the sustainer of all of creation. By him all things were made, through him all things were made, and to him all things were made as the purpose. And he upholds it all by the power of his word. So, Jesus is Lord of creation. Now, I know all of you right now are thinking, well, you just re-preached everything that you preached last week. And yes, I did. And I did it for a purpose. Okay? I did it not just to bore you, uh, not just to say the same things to you. I did it because I want it to be in the forefront of your mind who, what Paul has already said when we get to what he says today. Because what he has set up for us is one of the most amazing contrasts that you will ever see. Jesus is the Lord of creation. He reigns essentially, those of y'all that were in Sunday school, his essential reign over all things. But he also reigns mediatorially in a special way over his people. What we have here is the image already of Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah sees the Lord in his throne room, on his throne. Uh, The angels are there. He speaks and it shakes the foundations. The angels are there and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And you remember in John, John says, who was it that Isaiah saw there? It was Jesus. It was the Christ. And so Paul has given us that image. He has given us the reigning king up in heaven with the angels there proclaiming his holiness. Now, now today, as we move forward in our passage, what he says to us is that this same Lord of creation, he is also the Lord of redemption, that God has given him to come and to be for us the head of the church. That now he is imminent. Now he is, is close to us in a way that, that we could not even imagine because he has come and he has taken upon himself the sins of his people. He has brought with him redemption. Now, for those of you who are tracking along with me, already we have said enough for all of us to stand up and to say, hallelujah. But before we do that, and I'm not saying you can't do that, but before we do that, let's read and let's consider what is here before us, okay? So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15, we're going to read all the way through it again, okay? So let's hear God's word. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy and what a blessing it is to approach your word and to read of your Son, our Lord. Uh, Truly, all of Scripture is a testimony to who he is and to what he has done. Uh, And yet here, it, it is explicit. Here, it is laid out for us, plain to see. And so we ask, Lord, that through the illumination of your Spirit, we would see, that we would see Jesus. And Lord, that as we see him, we would learn to fall down and to worship him, our King and our Redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the Lord of redemption. And so the first thing that I want you to see here in this passage before us, beginning uh, in verse 18, really, but Hearkening back to all that has been said before, as the the Lord of redemption, I want you to see how Paul describes him, how he uh, presents him to us, okay? So if you have the outline for you, I want you to follow along because there's a lot of stuff going on in today's sermon, okay? So um, he is the Lord of redemption, and as such, notice first, He still is, has that fullness of God in verse 19. The picture we have drawn in the verses before, 15 through 17, that picture we just discussed from Isaiah 6, it has not changed. Even in the incarnation, he is still the fullness of God. He bears in himself the fullness of all that God is. He is God in the flesh, fully God, our confessions say, right? Then, uh, almost unthinkably, a change occurs. And it occurs in verse 20. Notice, he is not only fully God, but notice that, that he who reigns on high... He who is deserving of all glory, honor, and praise, he is also he who comes as the suffering servant. He is the one who comes as fully man with a body of flesh, verse 21, with real blood coursing through his veins, verse 20. Blood that he would shed in the most unimaginable way possible on a cross, in the place of the lawless, in the place of criminals. And there he would suffer back in verse 21, even to the point of death. 
He who made the universe. He who Paul has just said upholds it all as the Lord of creation, now as the Lord of redemption. He comes to die a sinner's death. He comes to take the lowest place. Now friends, we're going to come back to this point over and over and over again. If, this, if there's a central point of my message today, this is it. We haven't got to the heart of it yet, but we're getting there. But can you begin to see now why I took the time to consider what we talked about two weeks ago? To consider the, the contrast here, to consider the sheer depth of condescension that is before us. Consider how far Jesus has stooped in the matter of a verse. Think about how far he has reached down for folks like, like you and me. He spoke all things into existence. His voice causes the earth to tremble. Angels surround him and cry out, holy, 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 and yet here he is becoming what he made. Here he is becoming what he made and he is taking the lowest place. In order to die, I wonder, do we feel the weight of that? Can your mind begin to, to comprehend even a part of what we just said. I'm not sure that, that we do feel it. I'm not sure that we do comprehend it because if we did, I don't know that this place or any place could contain us. The fullness of God. The suffering servant. But then also notice, thirdly here under our first point, that as Lord of Redemption, he is also the preeminent king of his church in verse 18. And notice that language that we have seen comes back. It says, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the, verse, the firstborn from the dead. In his resurrection, Jesus becomes a sort of first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He is the, the trailblazer in the book of Hebrews, right? So that, in the last half of that verse... In everything, he might be preeminent. Preeminent over his people. Preeminent over death. Preeminent over an eternal creation. Picture in your mind those scenes that we see in the book of Revelation. Who is it that rules over heaven and earth? Who is it that occupies the highest place? It is the Lamb on the throne. It is the Lion of Judah. It's Jesus. Here, that essential reign and that mediatorial reign that we talked about, now they, they come together as he rules over his people in a new creation for all of eternity. And so, as Lord of Redemption, he is fully God, he is fully human, he is the preeminent king over his church and over all things. Who was he? Secondly, in this passage, I want you to see, as Lord of Redemption, what he accomplished. Now, it's one thing to talk about uh, the Colossian Savior, as we've been doing, sort of in factual terms. 
We've set forth his glory. We've talked about the things that he's done, and we've kind of done it very, very factually. Here's the truths about Jesus. And that's good. We need to do that. And, and all of these things are true. But friends, here, here it gets personal, okay? Now, now it's not just facts that are out there somewhere, but now they are facts that are essential for you, and they're essential for me. Because here Paul reminds us that all Christ did, it wasn't just an unfortunate event in history, you know, an innocent man suffering, unneed, or suffering needlessly. All that Jesus did, as some try to say today, it wasn't just to set a good example for us. No, he did it so that we who were alienated, who were hostile in mind, Paul says there, so that we who were doing evil deeds in verse 21, so that we who were at enmity with God, deserving nothing but his displeasure and wrath, so that we who had absolutely nothing by way of righteousness to bring to the table, have I painted the picture clear enough for us? Because we can go on. The Bible paints it a whole lot with a whole lot more detail than that. So that we who were lost without hope, Jesus came so that we might be reconciled to God. In Christ, no longer is there enmity. No longer is there separation. But now there is peace. Once again, there is joy in the presence of the Father. There is salvation for all who believe in him. Me and, me and Ben were on the same page today because I said this to the kids in my Mega Life class Thursday. Christ did not simply die to make salvation possible. He died to make salvation possible for you if you are resting in him. He was very specific when he died. It wasn't just, oh, hopefully someone will come. No, he died for his people. He died with them in mind on the cross, with you in mind on the cross. Now again, whatever sense of wonder we felt in point number one, it is and should be multiplied exponentially at this point. He who created you, he who formed you, he who died for you, he has died for you. So that you might be reconciled to God. In this moment, we're going to sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? He did. And notice, not only did he achieve reconciliation, but notice he has also given us, as Ben pointed out, holiness in verse 22. Now, these two things, reconciliation and holiness, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. But what I want you to see here is what Christ has given us by way of holiness is really twofold. He's given us a holiness in legal terms, what, what, uh, what Luther would have called an alien righteousness. What I mean by that is before God's throne, right now, right now, in this moment, in Christ, those who are his are legally 
holy. They are covered in his righteousness. God looks at us and he says, you are holy. And the reason he can say it is because Jesus is holy. We are covered even now in Christ's righteousness. Now, look, that's important. Okay, this legal aspect. If you're here today and you're struggling with assurance, if you're struggling with the Christian life as a whole, all of it is wrapped up in this point. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot change the way God feels about you, good or bad, because your salvation, the way that God views you, is not wrapped up in you anymore. Ultimately, it is wrapped up in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. And so for all of those who are in Christ, and there's that term again that's going to be consistent throughout this book, those of us who are in Christ, nothing can change our status before him because we are resting in him. He has given us holiness. He has given us his blamelessness so that he might present us before the Father above reproach. It's a legal holiness, but, but secondly, lest we think we can now do whatever we want to with our holiness with no consequences, let me also remind you that in fact he is also working in actual righteousness in us as well. Ephesians 1.4, you have been saved to be holy. You will be holy, Peter says, as I am holy, quoting the Old Testament. So Jesus, through the work of his Holy Spirit in sanctification, is even now transforming us so that we might love his law, that we might live for him. Now, certainly, it will not be completed till we are with him in glory, but it will be completed. All right, hang on, I've got to get a pause just for a second, okay? Do you long for that? Can't, look, we, we think about... We talk about this a lot. We, we think about heaven in a lot of ways. But the thing that should really get us out of the bed in the morning when we think about heaven is the fact that there will be no sin. We won't struggle anymore. The sin that eats us up every day, and that's all of us, it'll be gone. We will truly be able to behold our God the way that we were created to do because that gulf that chasm that was opened up in Genesis chapter 3, it'll be gone. No more sin. Is that something to look forward to? That is that's something to rejoice in. So he's given us reconciliation. He's given us holiness. And then he also has given us endurance. He's given us assurance in verse 23. Now, verse 23, if you've been with us on our James study on Wednesday nights, this is a great verse to remind us of what endurance looks like. Paul and James are saying the same thing in different ways with this verse, okay? What he's saying to us is the, the testimony of a changed life is a life that endures, a life that continues on by faith, resting in Christ all the way, that, that keeps going, keeps bearing fruit all along. Now, to be sure, as we've said with sanctification, there's moments where we fall back and, and we have to repent and, and the Lord walks with us. But ultimately, 
perseverance of the saints, right? The, the, the test of a faithful life is a life lived by faith. But I also want you to notice, what does that mean? Like, that's, that's, that's a lot of words, but, but what does that actually mean? Well, we said it last week in our study of James. Ultimately, to, to, to live by faith, to continue on, means to run back to him over and over and over again. It doesn't mean, man, we got to try harder. We got we to, you know, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and keep working as hard as we can. We got to read our Bibles more. We got to pray more. We got we to do all of these things if we're going to be blessed by God. Now, look, do we need to read our Bibles? Absolutely. Do we need to pray more than we are praying now? Absolutely. But if we are hoping to continue on in endurance, with assurance, it's not in what we do. It is what in Christ has done and what he continues to do in us. And so, friends, if you are struggling with endurance today, rather than leaving here and going out and saying, I'm going to do this better, I'm going to be a better Christian, I want you to be a better Christian. But the way to do that is to look to Jesus, okay? He will make you better, but you're not going to do it apart from him. If, if the strength is in yourself, you are going to fail. So look to him. Leave here and look to Jesus. He will give you endurance. He will give you assurance. So, deep breath. Who is Jesus? He, he is the fullness of God. As, who is Jesus as the Lord of redemption? The fullness of God the suffering servant, the, the preeminent king. What has he done? What has he brought for us? Reconciliation. Uh, he has brought for us something else to holiness, sorry. And he has brought to us endurance and assurance. Now, if, you, if you're with me, and I hope that you are, the way I want to end this today is the same way we ended this two weeks ago. I want to ask you this question. It's a simple question. So what? Okay? How, how do we respond to everything that we have just said? Given that Jesus is the Lord of creation and that he is the Lord of redemption, what is our proper response? There's only one. Worship. Complete life transforming everywhere we are. Worship. We cannot see all of this. We cannot think about it with any kind of clear mind for any length of time and not fall down on our faces before he who has loved us so completely, so graciously. Again, remember what Paul is doing here. You know, in verse uh, 14 or verse 13, somewhere up in that passage, he mentions Jesus and he becomes so overwhelmed with reality of what Jesus has done, he can't help but just sort of break out in this parenthetical, parenthetical, you know what I'm saying, song here, right? He can't help it. His life just burst forth in praise of Jesus. Friends, that should be true for every single one of us. If we're resting in him, if we really know who he is, that should be the reality for all of us. But here's my question to each of us, myself included. 
Why is it that worship is so often not the testimony of our lives? How is it that we can read a passage like Colossians chapter 1 and not worship? How can our lives not show forth these truths? Again, to put it one more way, how can we not just be randomly breaking out into uncontrollable song about who Jesus is? Uh, well, quickly, because this is a sermon in and of itself, but quickly, I want you to think, it's on your outline there, about three reasons why we are not worshiping Christ, this Christ, the way that we should. And first, is I think we don't appreciate the reality, the heinousness of sin. We don't appreciate our condition in it. You know, we're prone to, to view ourselves in far better light than we should in far better light than what the Bible presents us. You know, if nothing else, we're like the, the Pharisees. We say, you know, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as those guys. And so we see our works as better as what they truly are. But what is the truth? What, what does the Bible really say about you and I? Paul has said it here, alienated and hostile in mind, but he says, none are righteous. No, not one. All have fallen short. All have turned to their own way. All are all unprofitable servants. James says if you break one of the laws, you break them all. And the reality of Scripture, reality of our hearts, is that we have all broken at least one of them, truly many of them, all of them. Even our good works, Paul says, are, are they, it's dung. It's filthy rags, right? Whether you are a murderer or a little white lie teller, you are a sinner. And what does sin, no matter the degree, deserve? Wages of sin is death. Again, my, my point here is not to hurt your feelings or to make you feel bad about yourself per se, even though that may be what we need. But my point is to try to help you see how desperately you need a Savior. Because if you feel that desperation, then like the publican who cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, or like the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet when she had no right to be there and nobody wanted her there, if we see how desperately, then like them, we will worship. We will have no choice but to worship and see how beautiful and how sufficient he is. Second reason why is I don't think we understand the nature of this world or who we are in it. I think we've forgotten. We are too comfortable here in this place. Have you ever considered how often the New Testament books, particularly the, the Catholic epistles, so James through Jude, have you ever considered how often they point the readers ahead to the future hope that they have in Christ? to the, what's coming, to, to the eternal things, continually pointing them ahead. Why is that? It's because their lives were bad. They, they were suffering. They were looking for more. And so where did the authors point them to? They pointed them to Jesus, to, to what he would do, to what he was coming back to do. And so again, for those first century Christians, Jesus is essential he is all the more glorious because they recognize their great need for him. 
Friends, the truth is, is we sort of like our lives. We sort of like this place. You know, things are, are pretty cushy here. We have all we need. Honestly, you know, the things that we, we do need, we can go out and we can get ourselves. And so at least in our minds, it seems we don't have a lot of need for future glory. If we have a need for a Savior, it's more of a, an insurance policy where he comes in and he saves the day, superhero Jesus. He comes and he saves the day when things get hard. You know, we've, we've pretty much got it under control. Friends, the unfortunate reality is you don't have it under control. And I don't either. This world is not our home. However good it may be, it is not what it should be. Whether we recognize it or not, we should long for a different place. We should long for more in Christ. He is our assurance. He, what he is doing now and what he is coming to do, that is our hope. That is our strength in this world. Not our stuff, not our comfort. He is. Thirdly and finally, we don't worship in this way, in the way that Paul shows us here, because we don't fully understand or appreciate the truth of what he has unfolded here, the full scope of it. Can't just take a moment to recognize that in redemptive history, before the very foundations of the world, but before there was light, before there was an earth, before there was any created thing, Christ declared, you, if you are in Christ, that person's mine. He's mine. She's mine. That little boy, that little girl, they're mine. Before anything was made, he said, they are mine. And then, from Genesis 1 till the New Testament, was a testament of how that would be accomplished. And then from the Gospels to Revelation is a testimony of how Christ is setting all things new, how he is reconciling all things to himself. Friends, if that's true, if we really believe it, then we should be overwhelmed with it. We should never stop being overwhelmed with it. You had no hope. I had no hope. You were utterly lost. You were going to hell eternally, and God, with no obligation, out of sheer grace, sent his Son, the creator and the sustainer of all things, to die for you, so that in his death and in his resurrection, sin and Satan and death might be defeated so that you might be reconciled to him. To put it another way, and this is where we'll end, things were going as bad as they could go. And now, in Christ, they are going about as good as they can get. He, he is going to do far more than we can ever imagine. He is doing far more than we can ever imagine. Friends, if this were any other truth, if this were technology I was standing up here talking to you about this morning, if this were a friend that had done these sorts of things for you, if this was some new medicine or some self-help book that you had just read, 
then we would not stop singing its praises until we had told everybody in our lives. So let me ask you, why do we stop singing the praises of this Jesus? He is far better than any technology. He is far better than any friend. He is far better than any medication. He is the Lord of creation. And he is the Lord of redemption. So, my challenge to you this morning is to never stop worshiping him. Whether that is here, whether that's out there, wherever it is. In everything, worship this king. As we pray together. Father God, we pray that you would transform our hearts so that we might see the the full beauty and sufficiency of this Savior that you have given us. Lord, our minds cannot even begin to wrap around even a part of his glory, of his authority, of the place that is rightfully his. You know, we read in that great Christ him in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself and we say that he emptied by 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 addition that he took on human flesh that he never ceased to be all that he was and all that he is that he took on this flesh and he became nothing for our sakes Lord may that break our hearts May it overwhelm us, but also, Lord, may it it fill us with joy unimaginable to know that you have loved us with so great a love, that he has loved us, so that he could say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He could go to a cross knowing what was there, knowing what he would endure, and he could do it so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, I just pray that 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 truth would, would root its way into our hearts and that it would grow and overflow and that our lives would be a testimony to that truth. Worship everywhere because Christ is king and he has redeemed us. Lord, apply these truths. Apply them to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.